three, two, one, zero, zero, and liftoff. This is Nuclear Knowledge. Production of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies. Welcome back to another episode of Nuclear Knowledge. Today we're going to talk about Vladimir Putin and how you can better understand what he's doing and why. So rather than having a detailed discussion of Russian nuclear capabilities, which is what we often do on nuclear knowledge as we talk about how the bombs work and as we talk about capabilities of our adversaries. Let me take you back to the founding of Kievan Rus. Now, any discussion of Russia's invasion of Ukraine or its nuclear arsenal must begin with the discussion of the geography and history driving the present. When Kievan Rus was founded in the ninth century, Around what is now the capital of Ukraine, the Rus were building a society at a vulnerable geographic location where the great European plain facilitates invasion. Thus, the Rus fought first the Byzantines and then the Poles, and they did this again and again for more than two centuries. When the Mongols repeatedly invaded Kievan Rus from the east, which they did from 1223 to 1240, Scandinavian monarchs saw an opportunity to seize the Rus' northern lands. It should come as no surprise then that in 1263, the capital shifted from Kiev to the northeast to what is now Moscow, making the Grand Duchy of Moscow the heart of Russian civilization. Unfortunately, This did not save the Muscovites from invasion. The Golden Horde first raided from the east in 1377 and was a constant problem for Moscow until 1478. When the remnants of the Golden Horde were defeated and Russian territory consolidated, it was time for Russia to look west and spend the next 300 years waging incessant wars against the Lithuanians, Poles, and Swedes. From the Russian perspective, the Poles spent a century instigating Lithuanian aggression before joining the Lithuanians in a commonwealth bent on the conquest of Russian lands. The Swedes, too, sought to invade and annex Russian territory along the Baltic. Russia and Sweden fought war after war for nearly three centuries. It was only near the end of the 18th century that Russia consolidated its territories, solidifying the Russian Empire. Then, in 1812, Napoleon Bonaparte invaded Russia and defeated the Russians at Borodino on the outskirts of Moscow on September the 8th, 1812. Now, rather than turn the city over to Bonaparte, Moscow was set ablaze and burned for five days, leaving the city in ruins. The French were ultimately driven from Russia, but the experience left an indelible mark on the Russian psyche. Thus, when Operation Barbarossa commenced on June 22, 1941, Joseph Stalin and the Russian people 
were experienced with invasion from across the great European plain. This time, however, Russia would lose more than 10 million people, face economic devastation, and see levels of depredation that even exceeded Stalin's own. Victory against Nazi Germany came at a high price that is only now passing out of present memory as the last veterans of the great patriotic war die off. It should come as no surprise then that a young Volodya Putin, born in Leningrad in 1952, would grow up hearing the stories of his parents and the sacrifice and suffering of the Russian people. Putin grew up at a time of wanton Russia, but both intelligent and ambitious, Putin managed to gain admittance to Leningrad State University to study law. If he was not set on joining the KGB, Putin may have stayed in school and become an academic. He did graduate from the St. Petersburg Mining University with a Ph.D. in economics in 1997. Now, Philip Short's recent biography of Vladimir Putin is one of the more readable looks at his life and career, if you're interested. My own effort to understand President Putin's invasion of Ukraine and willingness to repeatedly threaten the use of nuclear weapons leads me to believe that we have a strong grasp on what motivates Putin and the Russian state. It is often our dismissal of Russian concerns, right or wrong, that leave us seemingly surprised by Russian action. I submit to you that the current Russian government is highly personalistic, which means that the better we understand Vladimir Putin, the better we understand the state. Let me offer you what I think are key drivers in the present. First, Vladimir Putin's time as a KGB officer in Dresden, Germany from 1985 to 1990 was important in shaping his views of Western strength and dynamism and his view of Russian weakness. When Putin saw just how wealthy and advanced the West was compared to the Soviet Union, he understood the persistent vulnerability of his own country. It should therefore come as no surprise that when he moved to the administration of Anatoly Sobchak, mayor of Leningrad from 1990 to 96, he was a reformist bureaucrat who was open to Western investment and management approaches. Second, the disintegration of the Soviet Union was, and I quote, the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century. Putin also said, quote, we turned into a completely different country. And what has been built up over a thousand years was largely lost, end quote. For Putin, the 1990s were a period in which he saw the West betray Russia by encouraging the breakup of greater Russia, imposing economic policies, what were called shock therapy, that devastated Russians, and the failure of the West to provide the same aid it was providing others. Third, Vladimir Putin came to distrust the United States early in the post-Cold War. Secretary of State James Baker's February 9, 1990 assurance to Mikhail Gorbachev that NATO would, quote, not move one inch eastward, end quote, after German reunification 
was the beginning of what Putin sees, even to today, as America's dirty dealings with Russia. In a May 19, May 10th, 1995 meeting between Presidents Clinton and Yeltsin, President Yeltsin asked President Clinton, I want to get, and I quote, I want to get a clear understanding of your idea of NATO expansion, because now I see nothing but humiliation for Russia if you proceed. How do you think it looks for us if one bloc continues to exist while the Warsaw Pact has been abolished? It's a new form of encirclement if the one surviving Cold War bloc expands right up to the borders of Russia. Many Russians have a sense of fear, end quote. By Russian thinking, the eastward expansion of NATO to Russia's borders over the past three decades was not only American dishonesty, but a very clear effort to eliminate the strategic buffer Russia requires in order to deter or defeat a Western adversary invading from across the great European plain. With NATO only a few hours' drive from Russia's major cities, Defense in depth becomes impossible, and this is the Russian strategy, defense in depth. Fourth, beginning in 2008, with the Russian invasion of Georgia, Russian use of military force became less about the country on the receiving end than about Putin's effort to blunt American efforts to expand American influence and, in Putin's mind, surround Russia and cause regime collapse so that a Western-style democracy can take its place. The 2014 invasion of Crimea was but one example of this effort to communicate to the United States that Russia would not allow further expansion to Russia's borders. The 2022 invasion of Ukraine was the ultimate act of a regime that feared further efforts to weaken its security position. Fifth, Vladimir Putin understands that Russia cannot develop or field the conventional military that can match the United States. American conventional precision strike scares the hell out of Putin and the Russian general staff. Couple this with fifth generation aircraft and Russia understands it cannot win a conventional conflict. The war in Ukraine offers glaring evidence of Russian weakness. Now, I have some colleagues at the National Strategic Research Institute who have a nice article in the latest edition of the Air Force Journal, Ether, on this very topic. Simply put, Russia fears that an American-led NATO air campaign can rapidly destroy Russian defenses. All of this is to say that Russian development and fielding of more than 2,000 non-strategic nuclear weapons across a variety of delivery platforms is really a no-brainer and should come as no surprise. Vladimir Putin is simply pursuing the most cost-effective and rational approach to Russian defense. Keep in mind, the Russian economy is one-twentieth the size of NATO's member economies, and its population is about one-fifth of NATO's. Russia is a marginal economy facing bad demographics with a geography problem. In many towns in Russia's Far East, 
there are more Chinese than Russian inhabitants. Thus, Vladimir Putin sees strategic nuclear weapons as tools for limiting escalation and non-strategic nuclear weapons as usable on the battlefield. Given his relative limitations, his approach is understandable. Well, I hope that offers you a, an understanding of why Vladimir Putin thinks the way he does and what motivates him. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Nuclear Knowledge. A production of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies.